Bibles, and I do hope you have them. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We're going to at least start there. We're going to do a lot of Bible looking, a lot of page turning, so I hope you have a Bible uh, ready and handy. And if you don't, you can use and look off your neighbor. They will gladly help you with that. So we've... uh, We've looked at these personalities. All the personality tests are back there. We're glad to have uh, Amber home from her first year at college. And so Tim was staying at our house. So I got these out. They all demanded that we take the test. So I said, yeah, let's do that. That sounds like a lot of fun. And we took those things, and it was just hilarious because we've all known each other for a long time, and you read through those descriptions, and there's just no getting around that these personality types do exist, okay? They're there, and what you want to make of them, well, that's that's what you're going to have to decide. But I believe, as you're going to see in the next four weeks, that they really do reflect the four resurrection accounts that we see of individuals, beginning today with Mary, and then the Emmaus disciples, and then Thomas, and then Peter. And you're going to see all four of those main uh, personality types and how the Lord responds to them. But to start this off today, I want to ask a question, and it's there at the top of your notes, and it's this. Do we prove the resurrection, or does the resurrection prove us? Do we prove the resurrection, or does the resurrection prove us? And I want you to see there that God uses the appearances that we're going to study about, the appearances of the risen Lord, to prove the facts of the resurrection. He does use the resurrection to prove the appearances, do prove the facts of the resurrection, historically and certainly enough in a law court legal evidence. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Follow along with me as I read that. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's a reference to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so the appearances that we're going to study are part of the proof of the fact of the resurrection. How diligent, how factual, how historical. We'll turn back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Take a look at Luke chapter 1. So Luke is volume 1. Acts is volume 2. Together they form one complete story about the ministry of Jesus. Now notice in Luke chapter 1, here's how historically accurate. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. So these were first-hand witnesses. Just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning, from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out to you, For you, in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So he's writing to the same individual. So that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So what do we we draw from these two uh, introductory uh, uh, introductions to Luke's writings? It's this. These are close encounters of the real kind. These are real historical uh, records and accounts of the risen Lord. So God uses the appearances of the risen Lord to prove the facts of the resurrection. But the second point I want you to see is God also uses the appearances of the risen Lord to prove our faith, to prove our faith. So this isn't just about something that happened in the past. It's about how God wants you to encounter the risen Lord and put our faith to the test. The appearances of the risen Lord actually tests the believers and their relationship with God. And to see this, turn your Bibles, John 20. 
John 20. This is the end of, of the book of John, and it's the reason why, why uh, God led John to write his gospel. Listen, or I'm sorry, it's, it's Thomas's, uh, the conclusion to Thomas's uh, resurrection appearance with the Lord. John 20, 28 through 29. Got ahead of myself. John 20, 28 through 29. Here's what Thomas says, as we're going to see in four weeks. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 29. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. That's you and I. We haven't seen the risen Lord physically, but blessed are you if you have the faith in the witness of the Word of God, the facts of the resurrection, to place your faith in that. In other words, these are close encounters with the risen Lord. So they are facts. These are real close encounters of the real kind, but they are to lead to our faith to where we have a close encounter ourselves with the risen Lord. And so that's the goal of what we have. And so, in a sense, the facts of the resurrection are an apologetic to defend the faith, but they're also meant to be a witness to disciple the faithful. And so I hope you're going to grow in your relationship with the risen Lord through the study of these appearances. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the first recorded close encounter with the risen Lord. First one, and the first one was with a woman, no less. You say, why do you say that? Why do you say with a woman, no less? Because women in the culture of that times were considered inferior and unreliable witnesses. Okay, they would never in that day in the court of law of in that culture, you wouldn't listen to the testimony of a woman. You would only count it real and substantial and worthy of listening to if it was a man. And yet Jesus reveals himself first to a woman. Jesus was no chauvinist, and neither is biblical Christianity. And here is the radical proof of it. Jesus chooses to reveal himself first to a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now, here's what you want to understand. Mary is just representative of a whole group of women who were welcomed and valued into the circle of Jesus' disciples. Did you realize that women were the last ones at the cross when the guys had all run away? They were the first at the tomb. They were the last to stay at the tomb. They were the first to hear from angels. They were the first to see the risen Lord. They were the first to believe in the risen Lord. And they were the first to tell others about the risen Lord. Any type of accusation against Christianity, Jesus, the apostles of being chauvinistic is totally untrue according to the facts. And yet, and yet, according to the original design of creation, the Lord still chose to use men as the ones to publicly lead the church and be at the forefront of proclaiming the message. So there's this balance. Men and women equal in value, but different in roles. Male and female, complementing and completing one another, just as God created them, male and female, in the beginning as we're studying creation, and just as in Christ, God redeems and renews that same equal, indifferent, equal yet different relationship. The reason I'm making much of this is because right now, more than ever, controversy and, and really compromise on the biblical message is taking place. More and more pastors and churches are advocating and actually having women preaching in the pulpit and leading and becoming ordained and, and leading as pastors and elders in the church. And often they will come to this account of Mary and say, look, the first lady the first person to see the resurrection was a woman. And indeed, that's true. And it exalts and values. And yet, there's still that equal but different together grand design of our Creator. 
Are you with me? Because there's a reason why Jesus chose 12 men to be apostles. He could have chosen women. How do we know that? Because he chose to reveal himself first to a woman. And that went totally counter-culture. He could have equally chosen six men and six women if he wanted to. He's Lord after all, right? You say, yeah, but the culture would have rejected that. Guess what? They rejected him. They rejected him and he came as a man, right? So this, so we have to go with the evidence of what we have. It's really cool. It's really radical. Now, what happens though when a popular sanguine encounters the risen Lord? I would put forth to you that Mary Magdalene has an emotional encounter with the risen Lord. What's going to be the result? Well, whatever it is, it's probably going to end up being fun. And in fact, I think you're going to find that. So let's look at Mary Magdalene. The first thing I want you to see is that she was a compassionate follower of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene was a devoted but discouraged disciple. A devoted but discouraged disciple in keeping with that sanguine personality type. Now, we don't know if Mary was or not. All we have is the biblical record. But let me tell you, we're going to be on an emotional roller coaster as we look at her encounter. So let's take a look at her. First thing we have to ask is which Mary are we talking about? Because if you've ever done a study of Mary's in the Bible, it will, you know, you, you should get a degree in Maryology because it's crazy. There's at least six, six different Marys in the, in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, did you know Moses' sister? What was Moses' sister's name? Miriam, which Hebrew for Mary. So you can see why that name would be very popular among the Jewish people. Also, Herod the Great. Uh, the political leader of the Jews at that, that time, his wife was also named Miriam. In fact, if you would have grabbed a baby name book uh, of Palestinian Jews, the Jews at the time of Jesus, and looked under names for girls, the first name would be Mary. In fact, every fifth woman you would encounter at that time would be a Mary, which explains why in the New Testament, Marys are always, something's attached to their names so you know who they are. Okay, so during Perspectives, we had three Chris's down here working. We had uh, Chris Ruckel, me, and Chris Pointer. And so the guests, our uh, missionary guests, uh, instructors, would first meet the first Chris because he would pick them up at the airport and give them rides. Then they'd meet me. I'd introduce myself and say, hey, we're glad you're here at LifeBridge. And then I'd say, now, here's our sound guy, Chris. And by that time, they were just all cracking up. Oh, there's a bunch of Chris's. Well, guess what? There's a bunch of Mary's in the New Testament. So which one are we talking about? Well, there's six different ones. Mary Magdalene that we're going to talk about today. Mary, the sister of, of Martha and Lazarus, who lived in Bethany. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and probably the wife of Clopas, who is also mentioned in the resurrection uh, uh, in crucifixion accounts. Mary, the mother of John Mark in the book of Acts. Mary, who was at Rome and was a hard-working woman that Paul, uh, 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 Paul commended for that. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you notice, everyone, they have to be attached to something. So usually they're attached to the husband that they're married to or the children that they have had. In Mary Magdalene, the one we're talking about, it's her, uh, it's her hometown. Magdalene is the town of Magdala on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So I think, we don't know for sure, but I think that indicates that she was probably not married because she would have been identified by her husband. She probably, therefore, didn't have kids or she would have been identified with them. And so we have the single lady and uh, who we're going to see uh, Jesus radically saved. So here's what we want to see about her. Number one, I want you to see her devotion. Her devotion as a follower of Christ was very relational and very compassionate. Now, why was that? Mary's devotion is due to her radical salvation. Outside of the crucifixion and resurrection accounts, we have only one verse of Scripture to tell us about Mary Magdalene, and it tells us about her radical salvation. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we're going to see that this lady 
had a radical devotion to Jesus Christ that was relational and very compassionate. Look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. Here's where we're introduced to this Mary. Soon afterwards, he, being Jesus, began to go around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Look at verse 2. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene. It'd be like calling me the Kansas City kid when I was down in Dallas. Why? Because that's where you're from. So she was just called the Magdalene. From whom what? Seven demons had gone out. So this lady had seven demons possessing her body, destroying her life. Jesus in grace and compassion, reaches out to this ostracized woman, women who were considered low caste in the society, demon-possessed would make her even more outside the realm of acceptability, and yet Jesus welcomes this woman and casts seven demons out of her. And not just her, but many women like her who were both demon-possessed and and full of disease. He healed them. And so these women owed Jesus a great debt of love, but that love was pure and completely above reproach. Because if you remember the fictional accounts of the Da Vinci Code, they would try to make Mary Magdalene and Jesus into secret lovers, and they had a secret love child, and actually Mary Magdalene was his secret wife. That's None of that is in Scripture. That is all fanciful fiction to sell books and make movies. Secondly, Mary's devotion is demonstrated by her personal service. Personal, or you could say financial service. Let's continue reading in Luke chapter 8. Notice it says in verse 2, Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who is called Magdalene, was one of them, from whom seven demons had gone out. Three, Verse 3, And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, a very uh, politically and, and financially uh, successful woman, and Susanna, and many other women who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So what happened was these women were radically saved by Jesus and out of a debt of love, they are using their financial resources because not all women were sub uh, treated as sub-inferior. There were women who were very successful by virtue of who they were married to and the political status, and they were women of financial means. And out of love, they begin to follow Jesus and his disciples. Because did you ever think, how in the world was Jesus and these guys making a living? They're traveling for three years. They used to be fishermen, but they're not fishing now. They're traveling around. How did they support? The The way they supported themselves and the way they were able to be supported were these women who had financial means, who had been radically saved, would travel with them. In fact, the word for contributing to their support is the word we get the word deacon from. These were the forerunners of the deaconesses. They were servants who met material needs. In fact, uh, Phoebe is called a deaconess. Uh, of the in Romans 16:1 and Paul uses the same word to refer to this financial offering that he collected from the Gentiles in order to meet the needs of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. What's my point? These ladies are fulfilling a vital role of serving and meeting the physical needs of the Jesus and his 12 male disciples and supporting them financially. Here I want you to, and in fact it's mentioned in Mark 15 
They used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. It's mentioned in Matthew 27. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. So there is this large, large crowd of women following Jesus all the way from northern Galilee all the way down to southern Jerusalem. I want you to see three things very quickly. And here's what I want you to see. Women love to follow Jesus. Can you hear that? Women loved to follow Jesus. Wasn't a chauvinist. Christianity isn't chauvinistic. And Jesus loved to follow, to value the standing and worth of women. Jesus lifted up the value and worth of women. The second thing I want you to see is godly women love to follow godly men. There was a big crowd that were following him. And godly men love to value godly women. This is biblical Christianity. It's not chauvinistic and it's not feministic. It is Christ-like. It is Christianity And that's what we are to model. Third thing I want you to see is that these godly women met the financial needs of Jesus and his disciples, yet Jesus did not choose them to be among the 12 male disciples who became his apostles. There is much here, listen, there is much here that we need to think on and make sure we're living out in our marriage, in our ministries, amen? Not chauvinistic and yet also not feministic. And yet, there's much here we need to pay attention to, but there's, there's much here that we're not to, we, we should not make more of it than what's there. So what typically happens is those that are wanting to compromise on the standards of Scripture in the gender roles look at these kind of passages and say, see what Jesus did with these women? Therefore, we should draw conclusions that women should be pastors, women should be ordained as elders, and yet that's not what this is saying. The role they're fulfilling is not that teaching and preaching role. And yet, they're not devalued, denigrated, and treated with contempt. Are we seeing the biblical? See, this is the biblical picture. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture from the very beginning. But here's the reality. Being a devoted Christ follower is never easy, right? It always involves dying to self and taking up your cross to follow him. And so the second thing we see about Mary is this. Her discouragement as a follower of Christ was also very relational and compassionate. Devotion can lead and will lead eventually to discouragement. So what was she discouraged about? Well, the most information that we have about Mary Magdalene is about the cross and the resurrection. So let's take a look at it. Mary's discouragement was due to his cross death. Turn your Bibles, John 19. John 19, 25. John 19, 25. We see that Mary followed Jesus from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem, all the way to the foot of the cross. What a great model of true discipleship. Look at John 19, 25. Therefore the soldiers did these things. They were gambling for Jesus' clothing. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, who was, by the way, named Mary, his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, so that's the second Mary, and Mary Magdalene. So there's all these Marys at the foot of the cross, all right? And there is Mary Magdalene. In fact, Mark 15:40 records the same account and says, There were also some women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. Salome. Sorry, I shouldn't have called her Salome. Sounds like salami. That wasn't good. Salome. Okay, salome. Now, notice, first of all, the presence of the three Marys near the foot of the cross. Notice that these women who had followed Jesus and the twelve from town to town, caring for their needs and financially supporting their ministry, have now followed him to the foot of the cross. Now, how close are they? Well, John says that they were standing by the cross. Mark says... 
they were looking on from a distance. The impression as you correlate these two accounts is these women got as close as they were permitted to get. They got as close as they were permitted to get. And notice that John emphasizes the presence of Mary Magdalene along with Jesus' mother and aunt. Here's what I want you to see. Mary Magdalene was like family. And yet, she wasn't married to Jesus. She wasn't his secret lover. But here was the family of God, which included significant, valued women. So they were discouraged watching him suffer this cross death. Secondly, they were discouraged due to his sealed tomb. Because here's the reality. If you're devoted to an individual and you want to serve Him like you've been serving Him, and you want to provide for Him like they were providing for Him, but He dies, what is left to do but to be devoted to His body and to honor Him in death with a proper burial? So the devotion to the living Jesus is shifted to His body, just like any time when you lose a loved one, the focus then becomes the funeral and proper honoring at a burial. And so Mary is discouraged because she can't get to the body because it's behind a sealed tomb. So turn your Bibles to Luke 23. I told you we'd be going a lot of places. Luke 23. Turn your Bibles to Luke 23. Here we see these women. They've been following Jesus and now they're following him to his tomb. And they're following his dead body. Look at Luke 23. Let's look at verse 53. So look up chapter 23, verse 53. Notice what it says. And he, Joseph, who was Joseph of Arimathea, took it down, the body of Jesus, and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. A brand new tomb that this very rich follower of Jesus had bought for himself and is now giving it to his Savior's body. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin, meaning Friday. And now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. These women's devotion is just amazing. They are fall wherever that body goes, that's where I'm going. But how discouraging to follow a dead body of the one you loved. This is Friday. And then it says, verse 56, Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. This was on Friday because they could work on Friday, but not on Saturday. And on Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. That would be Saturday. And then look at chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they prepared. So they're going to show their devotion to the body of their dead Master, turn to Mark chapter 16, parallel count. Turn to Mark chapter 16 in your Bibles. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Mark 16, verses 1 through 4. We pick up the story again. Here we see the names of some of these women. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Saturday, it's now Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So look at the devotion of these women. They're going to go and anoint this body, and yet they know that they can't have access to it. You would say, that's irrational. No, that's high devotion, right? And it is great emotion. They're dedicated. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, though it was extremely large. Now, how large was the stone? Well, the opening was cut out, and there would be this incline, and there would be this big stone, and there would be a wedge there to keep it from moving. Well, 
Some uh, manuscript evidence and scholars estimate that this stone was so big it would take 20 men to move it. So 20 men would move it and put it into place. And they estimate this was about four and a half by five feet opening at the tomb uh, that this rock had to be one and a half to two tons. So they would move it in place, put a wedge in there, <laughs> and then all you had to do once the body was laid, remove that wedge and shoop, and you know there'd be a wall here and that would be covered. That's what stood in their way. And yet they were going to go no matter what. And so obviously they're going to be discouraged. Who's going to roll the stone away for them? You know, where's 20 men standing around to do this? So the third thing I want you to see about Mary is not only her devotion and her dedication, but the th- or I'm sorry, her discouragement, but number three, I want you to see her dedication. We see in this her dedication as a follower of Jesus was very relational and compassionate. Now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, her dedication is seen. She has followed Jesus from town to town to town to town to town. All the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. All the way to the foot of the cross. All the way from the foot of the cross to the tomb. And now on Sunday, the first day of the week, she is following to the tomb again, even though, number one, she knew the stone was there, and yet she went anyway. She knew the stone was there, and yet she went anyway. That's dedication. That's determination. Secondly, she knew the body was gone once she got there, and she went back anyway. So they go, and they're like, who's going to roll the stone away from us, away for us? And they go there, and they see that the stone was rolled away, and the body was missing, but she's going to go back anyway. Let's read about it. Turn to John 20. Now, here's the, the passage we're going to camp on here for the, for the end of this message. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. All right? John chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. Again, we pick up the story of Mary Magdalene. Look at verse 1 of John 20. Now, on the first day of the week, what day is that? Sunday. Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone was already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she came, so she runs back to where the uh, disciples were at. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Her first conclusion is not resurrection it's what the body's been stolen the body has been moved so peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb the two were running together and the other disciple ran faster than peter that's because john was a young man okay and uh, came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in he saw the linen wrappings lying there but he did not go in And so Simon Peter also came following him. And of course, Peter's not going to stand outside. He enters the tomb. Why? Because that's his personality. Okay. And he enters the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered. Why? Because that's John's personality. And he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. So the two guys are like, okay, here's what's, you know, it's empty. It looks like John believes, but they both leave. But look at verse 11. But Mary, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Why is this woman doing it? She knows there's nothing there because that's her personality. She's relational. 
This is where her Savior was last at. This is where her body, his body was last at. Why go back to an empty tomb to weep? Well, first of all, it was common for Jewish women to wail and lament at the grave of a loved one. Mary's personality type is such that she is wailing and weeping over the loss of her Savior. But it demonstrates her great determination, her great devotion as a Christ follower, even in the most discouraging of times. This was the last place Jesus had been. This is where his dead body had laid. There was nowhere else to go. And there was nowhere else that Mary wanted to be. And yet, she knew all this. And the third thing I want you to see is she knew all this, and she still tried to retrieve the body. Look at verse 12. Verse 11 has her weeping and wailing, and she looks into the tomb. Now look at verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, now here's the key, Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you lamenting? Why are you wailing? And she said to them, which, by the way, is kind of an obvious question, right? Why are you here at a tomb wailing and weeping? And she said, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Look at this story. Once Jesus dies, they just see his body as this body that's being moved around by people. You know, it's like he's lifeless and he's helpless and he's dead and everybody's taking care of his body. And that's what she wants to do. She wants to take care of the body because in her mind, that's all that's left. And so she says, it says, I'm sorry. And so it says in verse 13, why are you weeping? She said, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? So the question is asked twice, but then she, he asked the critical question, whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to her, to him, sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Poor Jesus. His body just needs to be carried around. Somebody took it. I'll take it. Here is a woman without hope, and she's all alone in the world. She's in the garden cemetery at at the garden tomb, and she's all alone. And her Savior, who has radically saved her, who she has devoted her life to for the last three or so years, is gone. The object of her personal devotion was gone, taken away, and dead. Why go on living? And so what we see is Mary was a compassionate follower follower with devotion, discouragement, and dedication. This is who she was. And the risen Christ is going to meet her right where she is. So let's take a look at that. Here we're going to see a convicting encounter. Mary is asked an obvious question for a purpose. Mary is asked twice an obvious question for a purpose. The angel asked her the angels ask her the obvious, "Woman, why are you weeping?" And Mary's like, Are you kidding me? Why am I weeping? My Savior, my Lord, my teacher, the one who radically saved me and I have devoted my life has died. And now they have taken his body and I can't show my devotion. I can't show my love. I, I have lost the most important relationship in my life. Now, the angels could have answered her, but remember, these are close encounters of the real kind. They don't answer her question. Some commentators think they might have motioned with their finger. But in any case, Mary turns around and sees 
Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. She sees him and assumes, and his appearance was such that he, she took him to be the gardener. And the gardener now asks again an obvious question for a revealing, a revealing purpose. Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And here's the answer. John 20. So look at John 20, 14 through 15 again. John 20, 14 through 15. And when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there and she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, (laughs) that's ironic, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. I just got to help his body. I've got to help his body. Okay, and notice that again, Mary misses the point and again answers with the obvious. I'm looking for a body. And Mary again shows her dedication and determination. How is she going to carry the body of a grown man by herself? She's not going to do that any more than she was going to move that stone. Okay, you see that? And so here's what I want to ask you. You say, well, how's how's this relevant to us? Well, let me say this. Where is your hope this morning? Where is your hope? Mary was looking for a dead body, but you know what she found? A living Lord. Amen. She found, she was looking for a dead body, but she found a living Lord. And that was the point. Mary was looking for a body, a dead body. Remember in verses, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. They were worried about where they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. But notice, it's all about body. Where's the body? Who's taken the body? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And Mary says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away. Here's the point. She was in the right place to find a dead body. She was inside the tomb. But what God had for her was a living Lord on the outside of the tomb. Look at verse 16. Here's the beauty of it all. Here's the close encounter. Because with this lady who was relational, emotional, and compassionate, all Jesus had to say to her was, Mary. 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 She didn't need an explanation like some melancholy. She didn't need to be rebuked like some cleric personality. She, all she needed was to hear her name, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, teacher. And then Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. What was Mary's immediate response when she finds the body is a living Lord? She hugs him. Because that's what that kind of personality does. She hugs him. And then Jesus had to say, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. The body is now forgotten. There's a living Lord to be found. Isn't that beautiful? And, and, and that he had said these things to her. And so when Jesus said Mary, she never thought about a dead body again. So let me end with this. A close encounter of the compassionate kind, the living Lord that has a living hope. The living Lord who has a living hope. Are you low on hope this morning? Are you a follower of Christ? Listen, are you low on hope and yet you're a follower of Christ? Here's what Jesus is saying to you this morning. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And here's what I want you to see. Why are you weeping? He's asking us these same questions this morning. Is there the separation of death? 
Is there the separation of death you're struggling with today? Well, we have a living hope. We have a living hope. Your, your separation may not be death. It may be the separation of a relationship you once hold dear and is now broken. It may be the separation of a parent from a prodigal child. It may be the separation of a child from estranged parents or estranged siblings. Death is separation. And so whatever separation is weighing heavy on you today, realize you have a living hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And those passages in 1 Thessalonians tell us that one day we're going to be reunited with Him. Secondly, do you have the sorrow of discouragement today? Well, we have a rejoicing hope. We have a rejoicing hope. Do you think Mary ever wept again in her life? Yes. But do you think she ever wept like she did the day at that tomb? No. Because we weep, but we don't weep as those without hope. Because even in our discouragement, we have the rejoicing of a living hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? You see, that living Lord changes everything. And the second question is asked of us today as well. Who are you seeking? Or I think that should be, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Three things that we should take away. Are you looking for a dead body or a living Lord? Are you looking for a dead body or a living Lord? I love this question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Mary was in the wrong place, and yet the Lord met her in her wrongness and revealed himself to her. Isn't that beautiful? He meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us that way. Secondly, are you looking for a slain martyr or a risen Savior? A slain martyr or a risen Savior. Martyrs die for their beliefs, but the Savior died for His people and rose to save them. I love how Jesus says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended. But go to my brethren and say to them, My Father and your Father, your God and my God. The reason we could say that is because Jesus died so that we could have that kind of relationship. Number three, Are you looking for a mortal man or a reigning king? And this is the significance of of Mary clinging to him. Mary saw him still, even though he was risen. Was she happy? Yes. And what would her personality be to do? To hug him and hold on to him. But here's the reality. Jesus is no longer a mere mortal man. He was always truly God and truly man, but the relationship has changed. He is risen from the dead. He's going to ascend to heaven. He's the king of kings. He's not our good buddy. He's our sovereign God. Can we love him? Yeah. Does he want to be close to us? Yes. But God is not our boyfriend, and we shouldn't sing to him that way. And Jesus is not our good buddy anymore. He is our loving Savior who's a sovereign king. Now, why can't you just have a little hug? Well, because the reality was this. You don't have to physically touch Jesus to have a relationship with him for which we can all say what? Amen. All right? The idea was Mary didn't have more of a relationship than we have. It's all based on faith alone. Also, Jesus was saying, I'm not simply your teacher or your friend. I'm the risen Lord who loves you, but you are to worship me out of a heart of love. You know what's interesting? In Matthew 28, there's a group of women, this this group of women that Mary would hang with, they encounter the living Lord, they fall at his feet, and they grab hold of his feet, and they worship him. And Jesus doesn't say, stop doing that. What was the difference? Because I think Mary was hugging on him. And like, hey, it's back to the old days. And the others fell on their feet in utter submission and grabbed his feet in the proper position that we should all have in our hearts. Amen. And even Thomas, when Jesus said, come and touch, he didn't intend for him to touch. And Thomas never did touch. What did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. He got it. He got it. 
Now, here's what I want to end with. There's a room, there is room in our relationship with Jesus for both quiet time with Him and go time for Him. The point was this. Mary wanted to have a quiet time in the garden too. And Jesus said, now's not the time for quiet time. Now's the time for go time. Go, I'm risen. Go and tell that I am risen. And here's all I want to end with. Listen. Doesn't matter what your personality type is. Jesus is risen, and you can have a close encounter with Him today by putting your faith in who He is and the witness of His resurrection. But understand this your life needs to be balanced between quiet time and go time. There's a place for intimate relationship with Jesus, but that relationship is supposed to send you on a mission. And when it's go time, you shouldn't be doing quiet time. And when it's quiet, when you need quiet time, you shouldn't be always doing go time. Are you with me? Isn't that beautiful? See, Mary just wanted to, let's just have this relational good time here. And Jesus said, I understand that, Mary. And I love you, Mary. And my sheep hear my voice. And I call them by name and they follow me. And I called to you, Mary, and you turn. But now it's to follow me to the nations, to follow me to the unreached and the unengaged. Isn't that beautiful? So take these application questions at the end and evaluate. What is your immovable stone in your life? What has robbed you of your hope? And what are you looking for or whom are you looking to? Let me challenge you. Look to the living Lord this morning. Amen? Man, that's just good stuff. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come and uh, we are challenged again with you as a model of true manhood, valuing, uplifting women who were eager and wanted to follow you because you valued them. And you call your sheep by name and you called out Mary and you went from being a gardener at the lowest level of society to being seen as the risen Lord, and yet you had to teach her, just like you have to teach us, that you're not our sugar daddy, you're not our Santa Claus, you're not our grandpa in the sky, you are our living Lord, and we are to fall down and worship you. And so, Father, I pray that every one of us are experiencing quiet time with you and go time for you. And I pray that this lesson will have helped us to discern the need for that and to begin to live that out in our lives, our families, and our ministries. Lord, we give you the glory because you are the risen Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Mary has a lot to teach us, and we just hit the hem of the garment. Next week, two disciples, two discouraged melancholies on their way away from Jerusalem.